0: Hi, this is Larry Hulse, rock photographer. You are listening to Robert Miller's podcast, Follow Your Dream.
1: Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome. To the Follow Your Dream podcast.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is rock and roll photographer Jay Blakesburg. He's had over 300 photos published in Rolling Stone magazine and he's known for his photos of the Grateful Dead and their Deadhead followers, and of the alt-rock scene, including Soundgarden, Jane's Addiction, and the Pixies. He's taken photographs for a number of music, tech, and other magazines. He's also directed live concert films and videos, and he's done album covers for Nirvana, Blues Traveler, and Josh Groban, to name just a few he's done it all and as you know i like to feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end and i always try to make it relevant somehow to my guest and in this instance i am featuring the song to the zoo it's a children's fantasy song that i wrote about an imaginary trip to the zoo why did i choose this one Well, Jay has a long association with the Grateful Dead, which we're going to talk about. And in this song, I asked my guitarist, Tristan Clark, to channel his inner Jerry Garcia. And he did it brilliantly. So I thought it fit. So Jay Blakesburg, welcome to the Follow
2: Your Dream podcast, baby. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. Uh, Clarification. I have shot album packages for Blues Traveler. I have shot album packages for Josh Groban, but I did not shoot an album package for Nirvana. But I have shot Nirvana uh, a couple of times, but not for an album.
0: All right. Well, we'll have to end this interview then because I can't go on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you for that clarification. All right. So as I understand it, you grew up in New Jersey and you went in 1978 to see a Grateful Dead show at the Meadowlands. And from there, you just took off. Am
2: I right? Yeah, more or less. My dad loaned me his camera. I was sixteen years old. It was uh, maybe the third time I was seeing the Grateful Dead. First time I photographed them, nine two September second. I was going into my senior year of high school and becoming a, a you know a big Deadhead and uh, been photographing them ever since. Uh, I still work with members of the Grateful Dead. I just am about to go to Colorado and shoot them, and they're going to do their final. Uh, The final shows of the final tour in San Francisco in a few weeks here. Uh, I think this podcast will come out after that's already happened. But yeah, still work with members of the Grateful Dead. And um, that's sort of been my journey for the last 45 years or so.
0: So what was it about the dead that attracted you?
2: So the Grateful Dead are a unique musical experience. Uh, You know, Bill Graham, the legendary concert promoter, once said, they're not the best at what they do. They're the only ones that do what they do. <laughs> and that's true. And so, you know, you can go see the Rolling Stones and you are you might hear Satisfaction every night on the tour, and they're going to play it exactly the same way every night. And if you go see the Grateful Dead and they play Eyes of the World, you know, every third show, they're never going to play it the same way twice. Right. So this is a band that lives under the uh, premise of No Risk, No Reward. Right? They're willing to take risks musically. You're a musician, you know what I'm talking about. They take the risks musically. and if we all get lucky, they conjure up the muse, they conjure up the magic. And as the fans, we go along with them for that ride in the hopes that we also get to touch that magic and be part of that that experience, that cultural zeitgeist that brings you to a place that only live music that can bring you to.
0: All right, but when Jerry passed away, it did change the nature of the beast, right? How did you find the difference before and after?
2: Well, of course it changed. It had to. Um, you know, like I said, I've been photographing the Grateful Dead since 1978. So we're at what? Four, what is that? 43, 40, 43 years, almost 44 years, something like that. You know, members of the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzmann, Mickey Hart, original members, all still play music, right? So as far as I'm concerned, the Grateful Dead experience is still alive and well and bigger than it's ever been before right? The Grateful Dead with Dead & Co. and with what Phil Lesh is doing is bigger than the Grateful Dead ever were right now. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I just saw them sell out two shows at Fenway in Boston, breaking attendance records at Boston for most tickets ever sold at a single show. I saw them play two shows at Wrigley Field. I saw them play two shows at City Field in New York City where the Mets play. They're doing three stadium shows in Boulder three in San Francisco where the San Francisco Giants play at the San Francisco ballpark. And so they are bigger than they've ever been before. So the the experience still exists. The journey continues. Sure, Jerry passed away, the music changes, it morphs, but the root and the heart of the Grateful Dead experience is the Grateful Dead songbook, right? The song is written by Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia together, Bob Weir and John Perry Barlow together. And that's the basis for all of this. It's an incredible, It's it truly is one of the great American songbooks. And so we have that as its base and you have these incredible musicians. You still have members of the Grateful Dead playing this music, but you know the the friends, the people that they've asked them to come along with them, the lead guitarist from the band Fish, Trey Anastasio has played with them. Currently, John Mayer is playing with Dead & Company as the lead guitarist and one of the lead vocalists. And John is one of the premier guitar players of our generation. He's absolutely fucking brilliant. You know, uh, you have Warren Haynes from the Allman Brothers and Government Mule. You have all these different artists that have played in various incarnations of the Grateful Dead post-Jerry Garcia that have taken this music and kept it alive, reinvented it, reinvigorated it, reinterpreted it, and still creating this magical experience for all of the fans.
0: You know, you're a little too young to have been at San Francisco during the Summer of Love in 1967. Correct. I was there the year before. I just happened to take a trip with my family. I was way too young to really experience the whole thing. But I did see that the Grateful Dead and some of the other groups were starting to perform at that time in San Francisco. And of course, the whole thing exploded the next year. And it's that San Francisco vibe that has been kept alive by the dead wouldn't you agree
2: yeah a hundred percent so first of all if you were in san francisco in 1966 you know 67 is quote unquote the summer of love but that was because the media turned it into that media sensation right it was in life magazine and and look magazine and and cbs news harry reasoner did a documentary called the hippie temptation that was on cbs television and and uh You know, everybody knew that San Francisco was the destination, but for the people that were there, they will tell you that 65 and 66 really was the peak years of the Haydash Ashbury experience in San Francisco. Now, if we could go back to 1966 and do a vote in the community and say, who's the band least likely to succeed? You would probably vote for the Grateful Dead. If you were to (laughs) vote for the band most likely to succeed, you would vote for the Jefferson Airplane. Right, so by '66, the Jefferson Airplane already had hits with Somebody to Love and White Rabbit. The Grateful Dead hadn't even made a record yet. They were playing in the ballrooms, the Fillmore Auditorium for Bill Graham, the Avalon Ballroom for Chet Helms, and so it was those things for me as a teenager in the '70s that I was aware of. We were reading about those those shows in magazines like Relics Magazine or Rolling Stone Magazine, or reading about it in the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test. We knew who Bill Graham was. We knew who Chet Helms were. We knew who Ken Kesey was. We knew what the acid tests were. And so as a young teenager, all I wanted to do was go to San Francisco. Maybe I was just starting to take pictures at that point when I'm reading this stuff. It's 1977, 78, 79. I'm in 10th, 11th, 12th grade. And I wanted to go out there and I wanted to be a photographer. And I wanted to experience those moments with those bands and photograph them. And here I am 45 years later. And I have a giant museum exhibit coming up here in San Francisco at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. It opens August 31st, and it's open all of September, October, November, December, and January 2024. And it's called Retro Blakesburg, The Music Never Stopped. And it's got 215 photographs. It's got seven glass cases full of ephemera and memorabilia and artifacts and cameras. And within this exhibit, one of the first walls you get to is what we call icons, and the story, the didactic that'll be on the wall, the text that's going to be there talking about that wall is that I was in a teenager in New Jersey, and I was reading about these cultural figures: Grace Slick from the airplane, Paul Kantner from the airplane, the Big Five poster artists that did all the amazing psychedelic posters: Mouse, Kelly, Griffin, Moscoso, and Wes Wilson. Um, you know, and I was just dreaming and fantasizing about photographing these people, and I have now photographed all of them: Ken Kesey. Houseley Stanley Third, the guy who made six million hits of LSD and gave them away in the Haight-Ashbury while LSD was still legal. Uh, Tim Leary. These are all people that I've photographed in all part of this museum exhibit and all on that first wall when you walk in, uh, which is icons and, and, and inspiration for me and people that I dreamed about photographing when I grew up and became an adult and maybe had a career and I got to photograph all of them.
0: All right, explain this to me. You're still kind of young. This is 78, 79, something like that. You've experienced the Grateful Dead and probably others as well. How'd you get out to San Francisco and how did you ingratiate yourself into that whole world that you just spoke about?
2: So uh, the first way I got out of New Jersey, I don't know if I got to San Francisco, I might have gone somewhere else because it was taking LSD, right? So, So taking acid was life-changing, right, opened my mind to all of the possibilities of all the things that could happen. And of course, San Francisco was ground zero, the cultural zeitgeist on the corner of two streets in a neighborhood called Haight-Ashbury. And so that was the destination. I went out to see the Grateful Dead when I was uh, 18 years old in 1979, took a Greyhound bus from New Jersey to San Francisco, and saw Five Nights of the Grateful Dead at the Oakland Auditorium Arena. So you were
0: moving there at that time, or this was just a, a trip, or what?
2: A trip, road trip, man. We, you know, we wanted just like Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy did, and on the road, we wanted a, we wanted an adventure,
0: right? All right. So you see all these Grateful Dead shows. Then what happens after that?
2: Did you stay? So I'm following the Grateful Dead around the country, and uh, we'll sidetrack just for a second before we get into the photography side. I, I meet a guy. He asks me if I want to become part of his underground LSD distribution network. I say sure. He starts overnighting me thousands of hits of acid to my parents' house in New Jersey. I start (laughs) selling them to my friends. I get arrested. Wait a minute.
0: What do you tell your parents when it comes to
2: Well, they don't know. They don't know (laughs) know what's in the package. Uh, I get arrested. I get sentenced to five years in state prison, but I only end up doing eight months. And I get out. I move to the West Coast. I go to college. I move to the Bay Area in 1985. I'm a young adult at that point, 23, four, five years old. I can't remember. I have to do the math and i'm trying to figure out how to pay my rent so i just start taking my camera everywhere that i can and shooting any rock band that i could put in front of my lens
0: did you study photography or did you just kind of pick it up
2: i'm self taught i did study media studies i studied some photography and some film and video but really conceptually not technically or or you know actually shooting did some internships came to the bay area and just like like i said started shooting different bands and uh there was a woman who I knew uh, from Dead Tour, from Grateful Deadland, a woman named Robin Malice, and her best friend from high school was a woman named Jody Peckman. And Jody had just gotten a new job as the photo editor at Rolling Stone magazine. And this is in 1987. And so I started submitting photos to Jody at Rolling Stone. And she said, great stuff, Jay. Really like it. But sorry, we can't use it because we've never used you before. You know, catch 22. Right. And then... Uh, U2 announces a free concert in downtown San Francisco, and I'm walking out the door that it's on the radio. They're going to do it. We had heard this was going to maybe happen because they ended up using the Grateful Dead sound system for the show. And it was a Bill Graham presents, uh, uh, event. So Bill and the dead and everybody's all involved. And, and, uh, I hear it on the radio. I'm walking out the door to take the train into the city to go shoot this on my own. The phone rings and it's Jody from Rolling Stone. And she says, hey, Jay, it's Jody Peckman from Rolling Stone Magazine. I have your big break. I need you to go and shoot the free U2 concert in downtown San Francisco. That was 11-11-87, right? So that's 30, 36 years ago, I guess that is. That, that date is ingrained in your head. Oh yeah, and that was the first time i published in Rolling Stone Magazine. Previously, I'd been published here and there in a couple of different magazines, Relics and Guitar Player, you know, a couple of different things here and there. But I took that 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 photograph from Rolling Stone, and and actually shortly thereafter, Jody liked what I did. She started giving me assignments left and right. She flew me to L.A. to shoot Roseanne Cash, and I shot a benefit in San Francisco with Carlos Santana and Baz Skaggs and Jerry Garcia, and and uh, you know, so I'm starting to shoot all this stuff for for Jody at Rolling Stone. All right,
0: hold on one second. How did it work with something like Rolling Stone? Did they just take Guys like you and, you know, say, here, we'll use your photos, go shoot a particular concert. Did they pay you?
2: You know, were you on staff? How did that all work? I was considered a contract photographer for Rolling Stone. I was not on staff. I was an independent contractor. And yeah, we got paid an assignment fee, right? So back then in the early days of Rolling Stone, for me, my assignment day rate was 250 a day plus expenses. So if I went out and shot $500 worth of film and processing, my invoice was for $750, but there's other magazines out there where they would give me three, four five hundred dollars to go shoot something, including my expenses. And I might go and shoot three, four or five hundred dollars with a film and processing. You know, people would say, well, you're crazy. You're not making any money. But I've looked at it as an investment in both creativity, giving me an opportunity to create a body of work and, and try new things with with, uh, you know, more film, more lenses, more uh, opportunities to be creative. And uh, and I parlayed that into a portfolio that's now in a museum. Right. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of photographs in that museum exhibit that I shot on my own and nobody paid me to go shoot them. Or I shot them for somebody and lost money on it. But to me, it was an incredible investment in myself. Good for you. And uh, and so now I have this body of work. Listen,
0: people have to do that from time to time. And I'm glad to hear that you did it that way. You invested in yourself, like you said. There are a lot of places, magazines, uh, venues, etc., that take advantage of artists. So I'm glad to hear that they actually paid you for this stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I, I i built a I built a portfolio and I started showing it to other magazines, and eventually started showing it to record companies. And you know, good work breeds other good work. And I, I started out as a live concert photographer, but what I realized really quickly is that. If you got a magazine in the mail, or you looked at it on the at the newsstand at the airport, remember magazines. Remember those things? They're paper, and you open them <laughs> right. up, right? right. And uh, you know, so if you looked on the cover of the magazine, what was on the cover? It wasn't a live photograph of the band. It was a portrait of the band, right? And then you open up to the article, and there's another portrait that's a full page or a page and a half and then you flip the page again and there's a small portrait of them and then you flip the page again and then there's a little tiny live photograph and so i realized two things i realized one if i wanted to make more money i needed to sh- start shooting portraits so i taught myself how to you do studio lighting and how to work on location with with off-camera lighting and it sort of opened up these doors but the other thing that it, it you know, financially and and getting more jobs because now I could shoot a live concert and I could do a portrait and I could do them both well, right? But the other thing is, is that when you're doing a portrait of somebody, you're a director, you're in control. You're deciding what lens, what camera, what film, uh, black and white, color, fast speed, slow speed, indoor, outdoor, what's your background. You're essentially becoming a director and you're creating artwork. You're creating photographs that are art because you're directing it. Whereas when you're shooting a band on stage, You're just trying to capture lightning in a bottle in a a fraction of a second, right? So to me, it was imperative, A, from a creative standpoint, because I felt like just shooting live stuff could get boring very quickly. You're, You're always at the mercy of a lighting director or the stage lights or how high the stage was. And I wanted more control and I wanted to express myself creatively. So I began to do portraits of all these artists and became known as both a portrait photographer and a live photographer and who could do both.
0: hi everybody this is robert miller your host you know i've been fortunate to have so many amazing guests on this podcast famous musicians actors directors photographers and other creatives i've been asked many times how i get such great guests the answer is in several ways some contact me directly Some come through their manager or public relations firm and many come from referrals by my other guests. Well, now I want to open up the process to you, my listeners. I'm sure that some of you know a famous or interesting or accomplished person, someone who has followed their dream to success and who would make a great guest on this podcast. If you know someone like this, I'm inviting you to contact me or have them contact me. Shoot me an email at robert at com. That's robert at com, and tell me who you've got. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And also, you must visit our website, at FollowYourDreamPodcast where you can listen to all of our episodes and much more. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. All right, I got to ask you: Do you have one or two? of your most favorite photos and what would they be?
2: Well, you know, you're supposed to say that your children are your most favorite things. You know, it's like asking who's your favorite child or your pictures of your your children. No, but
0: everybody's got something that's near and dear to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, I shot a million photographs on film and I've shot another million and a half digitally since I stopped shooting film in 2008 And by the way, my museum exhibit is only photographs I shot on film from 1978 when I was in high school until 2008 when I stopped shooting film. Favorite photographs. I mean, I have an iconic portrait of Jerry Garcia. I really love my portraits of Joni Mitchell. I really love my portraits of Tom Waits. I really love my portraits of Santana, Neil Young. These
0: are studio portraits that you're talking about. Yeah, now.
2: studio portraits are outdoor environmental portraits with lighting. And, you know, I've had numerous opportunities for all of those. I've shot album covers for Carlos Santana, um, two album covers for Carlos. Uh, the new Neil Young live record that came out last year is my my cover shot. It's a live photo. Carlos put out a live vinyl record last year. That's my cover photo. I did the back cover of Supernatural for Santana. It's a live shot, but it's it, it sold 50 million copies.
0: Do you ever get called by the artist or is it always through
2: the record label or the agents or whatever? hundred uh, percent get called by the artist. Typically you're getting called by the artist manager, but yes, uh, all the time. I mean, you know, back in the day, you know, we got called by the record companies and the magazines. It was less direct contact with artists. Nowadays it's less with the record companies. There are no magazines. And so it's a lot of music festivals, <laughs> concert promoters and artists directly that need things done and need things photographed. All right. You have spanned several different eras in music, okay?
0: You have the whole San Francisco-based era, and I know you did the whole alt era. Tell us about your impressions of the different eras that you've covered.
2: So when when the alt rock scene started happening, Jane's Addiction, Soundgarden, the Pixies you mentioned, uh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, you know, late eighties, I was shooting a lot of stuff like that. And that stuff was coming up in the nightclubs, you know, the butthole surfers, meat puppets. Uh, like I couldn't go to a show like that and talk to the person next to me and say, yeah, next week, I'm going to go shoot three Grateful Dead concerts. I had short hair. I wore Doc Martens. You know, I was definitely dressing more in the alt rock vibe than the hippie vibe, but I was still very tapped into the Grateful Dead thing by the late eighties with the exception of Touch of Grey in 87 the big hit single by the Grateful Dead mainstream media really didn't care that much about the Grateful Dead I couldn't make a living on the Grateful Dead right but all these magazines back then they were they were clamoring for pictures of Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Jane's Addiction and Echo and the Bunnymen and The Cure and all these bands that were coming up and exploding in in this you know alternative rock punk rock new wave you know whatever you wanted to call it And so um, I was shooting a ton of that because that's what people were paying me to shoot.
0: Does it make a difference to you whether you love the bands that you're
2: shooting? Yes, but also I've been really, really fortunate. And there's only been a handful of bands that I photographed that I really didn't care about. I mean, I could probably count them in two handfuls, under 10 bands, 10 times that I shoot an artist that I really didn't care about.
0: Did you not care about them because of the music or because who, of who they were?
2: Just not being a fan of their music. Just not, okay. not something that I'm necessarily engaged with. But I've been very, very fortunate to have a career shooting bands that I really, really love their music. And that spans from psychedelic jam bands to classic rock, the Stones, the Dylan, members of the Beatles, Paul McCartney, you know, whatever, Ringo, you know, to to alt rock, all those bands that I mentioned before, to... The hippie bands of the of the 60s, the Santana's and Deads and Quicksilver and Airplane, Steve Miller, etc. The blues, BB King, Buddy Guy, John Lee Hooker did a lot of work with John Lee Hooker over the years. You know, so I've I've photographed all these different genres and I love all of those genres. I mean, I I could put on a blues record, I could put on a an alt rock record, I could put on some hip-hop, not my favorite genre, but there's a bunch of stuff in there that I really do love and 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 could listen to. Um, so, you know, I've been very fortunate. I mean, I've done portraits of Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and, and both of those artists are iconic artists. And my photos that I created of them are also, I have become iconic photos for a variety of reasons. Is there anybody that you really wanted to shoot that you just didn't get the chance to do? I mean, I've shot Bob Dylan. I obviously never shot John Lennon. He was killed really before I started shooting. Um, I wish I had photographed John Lennon. Um, you know, I would love to do a portrait of Mick Jagger still even to this day at 70, whatever years old he is, 75, 9. Seven, eight, nine. I'm not sure. Uh, Bob Dylan, I'd still would love to do a portrait of I've shot Mick and the Stones on stage. I've shot Bob Dylan on stage. You know, I would still would like to do a portrait of Roger Waters and David Gilmore and, you know, things like that. But for the most part, you know, I've shot them on stage. Um, I feel like, you know, I've shot a lot of really, really amazing amazing artists uh, you've had quite a career
0: it's slowing down at all or are you still revving up
2: you know i still have my my the pedal to the metal but i need to slow down um I, I need to take the foot off the gas a little bit especially these last six months with uh with this museum exhibit i did a museum exhibit at the mars museum in morristown new jersey which is the only smithsonian affiliate museum in the state of new jersey and i did that earlier this year it closed in february and I wasn't expecting my exhibit to get picked up so quickly, but it got picked up by the Contemporary Jewish Museum. So we immediately went into, you know, full press mode because that show opens August 31st. And uh, so I've been working on that a lot. And then uh, Dead & Company, the you know, Bob Weir and Mickey Hart from The Grateful Dead and the rest of the band have a big, you know, what they're calling their final tour. And so I'm shooting 17 of those shows in over a two month period. I've done 11. I got six more to go as of the taping of this podcast.
0: Do you do these shows on your own, or do you have a staff that you take with you?
2: No, I just I travel on my own. I shoot them on my own. I mean, I have staff back in my office. I have a full time digital guy. I've got another assistant that helps me with organizational stuff, and and uh, I also have a whole another business that I do with my daughter called Retro Photo Archive, where we own and or manage archival photography collections from elderly and or deceased photographers. So we have all this pop culture stuff. Um, there's a woman, her name is Beth Sunflower. She died 14 years ago. We own her archive. And she shot, you know, a dozen rolls of evil Knievel from 1972. The, the Rolling Stones at Altamont in 69. The Rolling Stones at Winterland in 72. Allen Ginsberg at the Human Bee in. Uh, Lots of pop culture, Jazz Fest in 1971, which was year two of Jazz Fest down in New Orleans. Uh, Another photographer named Alvin Meyerowitz, who shot at Winterland here in San Francisco for for a dozen years. So we have all of this archival pop culture, music, pop culture, photography that my daughter and I work on. She just graduated from grad school, so she's digging in full time now. She helped curate the museum exhibits also with me and and curated a, a coffee table book that I put out a year and a half ago called retro blakesburg if you go to my website which is my last name blakesburg.com or rockoutbooks.com you can see all my books i've done 16 coffee table books in my music photography all right
0: you are a uh, an industry in the photographic business unto yourself you've done so much incredible stuff with so many artists it's really been very very impressive And I wish you the best of luck with this uh, museum retrospective that's coming out, as you have mentioned, in August. Thank you. And I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. We have been talking here with Jay Blakesburg, who is one of the premier rock photographers of the entire rock era. He's covered everybody and spanned all these generations. And you were right there with the dead when they were coming up, and you're still with the dead. Good for you. Thank you so much for being on this podcast.
2: Thank you. Still love what I, doing what I do, and thanks for having me, Robert. I appreciate your time.
0: Okay, we are now going to listen to that song that started off this episode. It's my song called "To the Zoo." I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. The loves the
1: cheetah. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at dot and you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com dot and at thepgsstore.com dot com. We'll be right so much.